This is our Suburb Trends Report for July 2021, and we'll be looking at where prices are moving across the country, either up or down, and why they're moving. And what are the various ways to measure market growth anyway? Most of us know medians, but in this episode, we're looking into another option we have for measuring growth. And we'll also take a look at how being on a main road affects price growth and a drill down on how four bedroom houses have been performing. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. And I'm Kent, the data geek. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report which experts can you trust to get it right the elephant in the room.com.au One of the biggest challenges with applying property price data is comparing apples with apples. It's inexact. And just because the headlines say prices have gone up, say, 5% in three months, it doesn't mean that your house is worth 5% more than it was at the beginning of that period. However, with a repeat sales index, we're not only comparing apples with apples, we're comparing the same apple. The big problem is that you have to wait for the same property to transact again and hope that it hasn't had any improvements in the meantime. We're particularly excited to be digging into this data today with you, Kent. Hello, yes. I love some geek stuff. (laughs) Super excited about this one, Kent. It's uh, something that's uh, very interesting when you are comparing actual properties, not just, you know, some percentage out there. So give us a little bit of an overview as to what it is actually that we're covering today. Yeah, so the um, methodologies of measuring growth, we've heard of the hedonic index, so CoreLogic have had that for some time, and that gets a lot of media coverage. We've heard about medians, but one we don't hear about in Australia often is something called a repeat sales index or a Case-Shiller index, which is uh, widely used in the United States but not applied here or certainly not well known here. And why is that? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think uh, a, a little bit of ignorance. Now, I, I've built one of these back in the price finder days and had it embedded in the system. But what we actually found in practice uh, when using it uh, was that the average hold period was really, really long for a lot of suburbs in Australia, which really limited its use specifically for houses. So, so one of the constraints we found that made it less, less robust uh, was the fact that you had so many uh, suburbs, housing markets uh, that had 12, 13, 14 years plus. Um, so, and, you know, some suburbs have actually gone backwards, would you believe? Um, but by and large, what we found in the last, you know, last decade is a significant shift upwards uh, in the hold period for houses. That's really interesting. Um, I know when I first started in property and selling real estate in Balmain and discovered, and I still can't remember where I discovered this or how I discovered this, but there was some data that basically said the average hold period for a house in Balmain was six years. And I could see why that would be the case because you've got lots of smaller houses, entry-level workers' cottages, and then you've got sort of a lot of medium-sized three-bedroom homes, then you've got a very small amount of larger homes. Mm. And there was always demand for those larger homes from the people in the medium-sized homes that didn't want to leave the area. So you've got this pent-up demand constantly for those ones. And then you've always got this sort of pressure cooker underneath it all because the people who bought the little two-bedroom semis and and workers' cottages, once had that second child, they desperately needed to upgrade into those middle homes. So So you could see why people might only hold a home for six years. You know, when you extend that outside an area such as Balmain with that quite a unique composition of stock, then, you know, if you go out to the outer suburbs, people don't buy uh, you know, the big four-bedroom yep. mansion and then need more space, do they? I mean, and also in some of those other areas such as Mossman where you've got a, a lot of, or Haberfield, where there's a lot of larger homes 
that exist. It's fairly homogenous in, in terms of the size of the blocks and the size of the houses. So that does make it difficult, I guess. You know, it's much easier to use this type of repeat sales index in a place like Balmain than it would be, say, a Mosman, I would imagine. Correct. Yeah, well, REA put out a, an article in November 2020 on this called Why Aussie Homeowners Are Holding Property Longer Than a Decade Ago. And it's a cracker of an article. Yeah, and it's right. got a, Yeah, and it's got a tableau table in it. So I just, while you were talking, I pulled up Balmain. Now, what they've got is Balmain currently for houses is 12.3 years. Mm. Wow. And then they've got, they've got this little button that I can just click and I can go, well, what was it 10 years ago? It was 10.5 years. So wow. you can see how it's nudged up and wow. you know there are a couple of suburbs i did it i did it for coogee i my go-to is my own suburb up here in newcastle but i had to <laughs> newcastle can't help it but um coogee actually nudged backwards according to this uh, calculator mm. but um yeah so you can see that balmain's nudged up to 12.3 now that's for houses now i'll stay on the balmain uh, line for a moment if i click yeah. over and, and make that units uh, units is actually 10 years which is pretty pretty Still long, long. Mm. it yeah. is very long so you know when you compare and contrast that to some of the areas that would have a much higher rental tenure than Balmain you know, that is you know often there's a lot of suburbs in here five or six years I guess when I think people are living in their houses longer if we say that housing stock or listings you know, available houses in a suburb are pretty flat, right? If not decreasing because sometimes they knock houses down to build duplexes or apartments, et cetera. If people are living in their houses longer, what that actually means is that they're selling less, which means listings are going down. And if that continues to get worse, then that means supply is actually dropping in the amount of properties for sale each year. And so in your, your sort of Balmain example, if people can't afford to do that upgrade because there's no listings of those four beds, do we then just start to have more compromises? And, you know, in that scenario, Veronica, someone has the apartment then they go to the two-bed house and then they move out of Balmain, but then they say, well, actually, you know, it's not that much cheaper if I go to the outer suburbs. So, you know, if they just stay in that two-bed house or the cottage, ultimately longer term we're getting this real tightening of supply on the market each year. And, you know, and then obviously more and more people want those properties. So, Longer people live in houses, it's actually just saying that means less than every every year, less listings. This is fascinating, actually. This is the a direction that I wasn't expecting this conversation mm. to take, but we'll include the link for that article you're just talking about in the show yeah. notes because there's lots of hypotheses running through my head here. And one is that Balmain is a blue chip suburb and a hallmark of a blue chip suburb is that people aspire to live there. And then once they do live there, they don't want to leave. And so if you don't have options to upgrade within your suburb, you know, it's the it's the ultimate sort of property, you know, human condition pro- dilemma, right? It's space versus location, you know, property versus position as we call it in our business. And so some people will compromise on location in order to get the property that they're after. Yeah. But it seems to be when when you go to these blue chip areas, and I'm just picking Balmain as an example, and obviously it's one I know intimately, that people will make all sorts of compromises on the property in order to be in that area. Yes. I, look, I think shipping the kids off permanently to boarding school Easy. makes makes a lot of sense. <laughs> For lots of reasons. <laughs> and people actually do that. You know, there's Joey's oh, they, in Hunters Hill. It's a bit bizarre. It's like I've heard. i got to tell you, all my mum's side, they ship the kids off and barely invited them home. <laughs> that's terrible. What are you creating? <laughs> anyway, that's a social issue that we don't really want to go down that path. But suburbs like Balmain with that, period of time going up, that length of, of tenure or hold times going up is very interesting. I wonder if that's different in other areas that are not aspirational, more of the ripple effect areas. Mind you, we mm-hmm. won't see this in a, fall, in, a, in a rising market. We'd see it in a falling market where in those ripple effect areas, people who bought there purely because they can't afford where they want to be, then turn their attention to really where they want to be when the market starts falling. Well, uh, look, I, I think there's some rules that are, are really being shaken up at the moment and, and some suburbs that, you know, some areas or regions that we thought 
uh, well, were traditionally the ripple effect. Or I'll move to Central Coast, for example. Mm. You know, let me get out of the let me get out of the city. I'll move up the Central Coast, have a nice house, maybe with a glimpse of some water, and save money over living in the western suburbs of Sydney or whatever. But there's some significant changes in those places, so we've got to be really careful with how we kind of categorize some of these mm. markets as a result mm. of COVID. Now, I'll just stay on that just at Gosford at the moment. It is crazy what's happening there because what's happening is there's been a slight uptick in listings volumes. And I have yet to see markets tested because it's just been inventory low, low, low because listings have been low, low, low. So it's it's you know very, very easy to see why prices are going up. And we haven't had that test of uh, an upswing in listings volumes yet. Will we just have? It's just nudged up a bit in the Central Coast Gosford area, yet inventory's continuing to go down. So it's fascinating what's happening, and we just can't categorise suburbs like we used to. On a macro level, I was looking at some data put out by Westpac. I think they were using CoreLogic for this, and they said basically in May nationwide, I think it was 130,000 listings, new listings, and that was an uptick. That was a 15% increase year on year or something, Hmm. but 160,000 transactions. So 130,000 new listings, 160,000 transactions. What's that saying, though, is a lot of the stuff that wasn't listed that month has sold, and so a lot of the older now, some of those yeah. properties haven't sold that month of that 130, let's say 10, 20% maybe, mm. but then that means 60,000 of listings older than a month have sold. And that showed that a lot of, 30, you know, the desperation in the market really. <laughs> um, no, it does. You know, but, but also when you talk about listings coming on and everyone gets excited about it, mm. really the transaction data is the important stuff, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, some of these suburbs, these outer suburbs, their whole period's going up and up and up. So they're booming but they're not listing. So mm. while we're talking, just zoomed out to one of my favourite go-to suburbs, Womberall, up in, uh, you know, it's a beautiful suburb up at Gosford. Yeah. And that's jumped up. So, you know, at 11 years effectively now, but 8.2 years, whole period, a decade ago. So mm. that's common. And, you know, you can see why that's also contributing to price growth. I mean, a lot of people in Womberall can't sell because they lost their houses in that storm, didn't they? Oh, I shouldn't laugh. But, I mean, it did occur to me. I thought maybe they are trying to sell because they don't, they're <laughs> teetering over the cliffs. Yeah, no, mate, Womberall is an amazing suburb. It's beautiful. Though. No, yeah. Only if you've got the sort of coastal beachfront, sort of cliff front, now cliff front properties, mm. but you've got the acreages just on the other side, right, where there are lots of houses with bigger than acres literally five minutes from the beach. So good choice of suburb. Some of these suburbs, yeah, there's three markets mm. in one, you know, yep. the beach side, the, the near beach and the rest. Yeah, and look back to our local knowledge, you have to sort of get <laughs> in there. But let's let's go back to the data here. So we know medians, right? So just, you know, for anyone who hasn't sort of been paying attention or listened to one of these episodes previously, just quickly give us a snapshot. What is a median price? Yep, we list down all the sales over a given period for a suburb or a region, high to low, and we take the one in the middle, that's the median. We pick on a suburb like Womberall, for example, we'll find that there's a you know three different distributions for that particular suburb, those beach the beach side, the near beach side, and then those away. Mm. And what can often happen is if there's not a lot of listing activity along the beach side in Womberall, then we can see prices go down, which is not really representative of what we want, mm. which is me- measuring true valuation change. So you almost need to carve up every suburb into the sort of its segments and then do a median on each segment, which is very yeah. messy. But the thing about a median is 50% of properties will perform better than the median and 50% will mm. perform less than the median. So how is the median useful? I think that the median is is very useful when you get it up to a statistically relevant sample size. And I go on about the statistical area three, SA3. Mm. And what you find you, when, you, when you zoom out to that and you look at the, the shape of it, it, most of these SA3s look very normally distributed. So uh, I have found that the SA3 level median is really robust and really reliable for tracking price changes at a you know a, a very pragmatic, simple way. Mm. Okay. 
And the stratified median is what we were talking about just then about segmenting an area or is that what you mean by? Yeah, a lot of these. So there's different people take different approaches to stratification, i.e. You know, layering or, or you know, stratifying the data and then layering it up to try and balance out all the anomalies. Uh, another approach to the way you play with medians is just splitting it by bed count. So mm. uh, you know, what I like to do is look at, uh, the changes in prices between bedrooms. I look at the overall, mm. but I also look at the change in beds, and that gives me just another insight. Mm. You know, I like kind of look at it as a you're buying a car, you walk around it, and look, <laughs> you know, kick the tires and walk <laughs> around. I do do the same with a big blob of data, and you know, when you start to split it out and look at the changes between a three and a four bedroom, or say four bedroom and the rest, especially in this COVID era. We're seeing some really fascinating changes and, and some big boom times in the big houses. Yeah, we will get to that a little later. And interestingly enough, Megan and I, as I mentioned before in other episodes, we've got Homebuyer Academy. We ran a little uh, workshop recently, which was the Stepping Stone Strategy Workshop, and that's really about helping first home buyers identify an area where, you know, they're more likely, and I'm always very careful with this, you know, to to look for short-term growth, short to medium-term growth, because they need to get that oomph so that they can actually sell it and upgrade, right? And so in terms of looking in in areas and teaching them how to, to research areas using freely available data. And if you go onto domain or realestate.com.au and look in their suburb profiles, they both have this stratified median price data. And so you can see, you know, one, two, you know, houses and units, one, two, three, four, five, and so on, bedrooms. And it's really interesting when you look at some areas because you can see a real diverse spread of stock, of housing stock, or that is, you know, obviously transacting, as opposed to newer suburbs, for instance, when it's just just four-bedroom homes, that's it, nothing else. Mm. I remember Balmain used to have one bed, as you remember those days. Yeah, yeah, they're probably all, there's very few of them left. Yeah, they've all had some second bedroom squeeze into the attic. (laughs) But also it does, back to that conversation about Balmain earlier about, you know, there's entry level, there's a definite stratification of basically the property market so that you can see you buy that, then you upgrade to that, then you go to that and so on, you know, assuming you stay in one suburb. But it is really interesting when you start looking at different suburbs to see the makeup of their housing stock and to see whether there's that variety or not, you know, yeah. and that's just a very simple way of doing it. Well, I, I think the price, so to answer your question, you know, the, the value of a median, I'd argue that a, a price segmentation chart's much more valuable when you're looking at a suburb. So, mm. you know, I don't like, you know, that. I don't like looking at the median through time at a suburb. Mm. Okay, I won't drone on about that. But when you look at the price segmentation, it does tell you the profile of the suburb. You know, one rural yeah. or a Terrigal yeah. will will have, you know, a cluster of properties up around the 3 million mark and then another cluster around 2 million and then mm. the rest. And you can suddenly understand, wow, well, I can get a foot into the market here for 800K if I go on that side and, you know, away from the beach, but then I can work my way up. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're looking at comparing your property, though, let's say it's how's yours performing to the market, I mean, that's when you really need to go and look at actual sales in the suburb, Mm. go back in time, look at actual sales, you know, similar to yours. Because, you know, even a few hundred metres extra from, say, the train station or maybe on a better street versus – and if you're not comparing apples and apples, I mean, ultimately these medians can help give you a bit of guidance to say, okay, well, yeah, maybe that market's performing well, but I I really feel you should go even deeper, right, whether you're looking to invest in a suburb or looking to compare whether you should sell your property – I feel like you just got to look at actual real sales, like how similar are they and then how similar far can you go back and look at similar sales. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge with them, we'll call them comparable market analysis or a CMA, where you can handpick the comps, but what yeah. you really want is to have those comps automatically adjusted in the background for the indexation through time. So, <laughs> you know, we, we covered that last show. But- Holy grail. I would <laughs> love it if I could press a button yeah. and actually yeah. get a, a – useful output to that button pressing activity. Well, I mean, one way I do it is I would look on RP data and there's lots of other softwares, for example, but I've just got a subscription there and I can go into a suburb and you can click on any property and you can know exactly when it's sold and you can look at the pictures of what that property looked like at that point in time. And there might be another recent sale on that property and you can sort of say, well, actually, you know what, not much has changed. And you can look at how that property performed and then you can, you know, and you can really target it 
on an area like that you're thinking about buying a property or that, you know, you already own a property in. I think that's that's sort of how much detail I feel like you've got to go into to to know how that and then compare that to say another property you're considering that might be a little bit further away and then look at properties around that and say, actually, these haven't performed anywhere near as long. They've taken a lot longer to sell. But I think it's that sort of, you know, intimate market knowledge. If you aren't engaging a buyer's agent or don't someone who knows that area, I feel like that's the detail you've got to go to if you're considering buying. You do. I mean, it's and we're going to get back to the data piece here around this repeat sales index because I did some research back in, God, probably nearly 10 years ago now. And what I wanted to do was understand, well, I had this hypothesis, right? I, I could see that some properties perform better than others in the same suburb, right? And my whole business is really based on this research our methodology is really based on this research I did back then. And I'm like, why? Why do some properties do better than others? And how can we measure that? And so the problem, the difficulty is finding exact, you know, this solve for this then and this solve for that then over yep. over similar time periods when there's not a lot of volatility in that time period and when the properties themselves haven't actually been renovated in the, in yep. the intervening time, right? So I looked at Roselle. And I drilled down and it was, I compared properties that had sold in 2004 and then had on sold in 2010 or 11. And the reason I had that sort of wide period of time was because in that time, the median price for houses in Roselle only went at 1%. Talk about a flat market. That was a flat Mm. market just before the boom. Right. And so I figured it's pretty stable. There was no price falls. It was just flat. And so I figured anything that sold in 2004 and then on sold in that sort of wide period of time, I had a bit more, it was a bit more robust, you know, as opposed to other periods of time. And I plotted them all out and you could see that the median had gone up in that time from the 2004 to the 2010 or 11, I'd gone up, I think it was 32% to 33% in that time, right? So some properties had underperformed, in fact, most underperformed believe it or yep. not, and yep. only a couple overperformed. And the, and that was only looking at properties that hadn't been renovated. Then I looked at properties that had been renovated and tried to factor in or estimate what the, they'd spent on the renovation, so looking at that as well and the improvements. And, but going into and then pulling out of it, what do I know about property in that area? Because I know that area very well. And it's what are yep. the characteristics that the, the properties that overperformed had that the other ones didn't? Or what are the things that would have held them back? And this this actually underpinned us putting together our capital growth index, which we score every single property on now. Mm. And we it started from this research. And it was fascinating because, you know, we, we've we actually had a question from a listener to say, can we do a whole episode on proving this? And that this and I've done this many times in smaller yep. ways over suburbs, but it's really difficult to prove it on mass because of the the market volatility and trying to pinpoint properties that had sold in exactly the same time periods. But it was really fascinating because it, it absolutely demonstrates very, very clearly true evidence that not every property rises at the same rate in the same suburb. So I guess in a way, that's what we're coming back to, this repeat sales index. And and the danger is to go, oh, well, look, these properties, it's exactly the same sold there, exactly the same sold now, then therefore the market has gone up X because we're using that as the gauge. But it, that's still that individual property is done maybe better than or worse than the others in the area, you know? So there's still a level of analysis that is required, even if this method is more accurate. Does that make sense? It does. I do. Look, there's a few uh, nuances. That's my new favourite word, nuance. Mm. But um, I think when you come to houses, obviously you've got the potential for some renovation. So, so that that throws out the ability, you know, the the reliability of a repeat sales index to know if it's been renovated. Sometimes you can track it. If there's a DA, that's great, uh, and you can even throw in the the build cost estimate on top. So, so that's a given. But I think when, when you start to look at why you've got that volatility, different buyers, different sellers, people, mm. um, you've got zoning. Zoning things can change. Traffic flows can change. So there's lots of things that can change at that microburb level, at that street level. Mm. So the only thing that's true is a, a house side by side that's exactly homogenous like you get out in the, in the, in the specky suburbs. Which is what uh, we tell people not to buy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's you know they're the only ones that will give you the the, mm. the, the data behaviour that you're looking for in this ideal universe. Mm. 
Whereas in the reality, you know, we've got every house is different, every lot is different, every position is different, and buyers and sellers are different. Yeah. There's a lot of differences in that, isn't there? It's, which is why I find it endlessly fascinating. But what's the idea behind a hedonic index? I mean, what does that even mean? Yeah, so look, if you if you do the old Google search for the word hedonic, it'll come up with lots of references to regression. I think in more practical terms, what we're looking at here is a, a model that accounts for as many differences as possible. The stuff we've just been talking about. Now, what are some of those differences that can be accounted for? It can account for a bedroom difference. So, you know, we're automatically allowing for a difference in that. It could even, as you roll up and you start to apply some weightings before you create a capital city level version or a regional version, you can account for suburbs that don't trade a lot. So you can do all these different things. But if I go back to the original intent of, of the old CoreLogic one and before it was actually owned by CoreLogic, it was actually designed as a bit of a, a system or a tool to, to allow for, ideally, uh, trading <laughs> on the housing market. Now Ooh. that never that never happened, right? That didn't. Thank didn't God for that. <laughs> because you know, there's there's that thing of the thumb on the scale risk, right? Mm. So that was the background, and then it morphed into something that, in my opinion, and pardon my cynicism here, but it became very much media centric. It was very much for, and it's working, and it's working brilliantly because it gets lots of media attention, and it's a bit like the the, the weekend auction results. You know, again, I, I question the validity of, of relying on weekend auction results to track market conditions because they change week by week. But in terms of the hedonic index, to answer your question, it just allows for the variances. So it's a bit like thinking, think of it like this, is an automated valuation model. You rerun that automated valuation model on every property in the country and you rerun it today and you rerun it tomorrow. Right. And you tally them all up. So that's assuming the AVM is reliable. Well, if, it, if an AVM, this has always been my, my go-to, is if the AVM struggles in a given suburb, why is the hedonic index going to do any better? Yes. So that's an interesting one. So, so when CoreLogic put out price growth data, which I confess I do rely on just when we're doing our indexing of recent sales, when we, we've got to have something, right? Mm. Is that based on hedonic or is it based on medians? No, that would be based on their hedonic methodology, which right. they changed. And I can I can say, look, I've got no idea what they changed it to. Mm. Okay, right. <laughs> so <laughs> we just take it as a measure because CoreLogic data says that in the first six months of the year, houses in, in Sydney went up 18.6%. Now, anecdotally, I mean, on the ground, I would concur with that. Maybe even more in, in obviously some will gone up more and some gone up less. Yeah, Certainly yeah, exactly. it's the hottest market I've ever experienced, but that's the makeup of how that figure has come about. You're saying potentially if because they've reworked this hedonic index, but the, the underlying foundation of that is basically running AVMs on every single property. Yeah, but when you roll up into a and you aggregate at a at a broader area, mm. then it starts to behave itself for all the same reasons why a median starts to behave itself. That's why they call it statistically significant, right? Yay! Hey, <laughs> but I guess on this sort of repeat sales index, I mean, I guess we're seeing that houses are taking longer to sell, which for me means that over the longer term, if that trend continues, if we keep living in our houses longer and longer, then there's already. A, limited supply and that's just getting tighter and tighter. But is there any way to sort of then go deeper and say, well, what's the relist rate, I guess, on these certain streets? You know, if we rule out all the main roads or can we sort of re look at the relist rate of all the north-facing backyards? Mm -hmm. Is there any sort of way of doing that sort of data can't because it'd be interesting to sort of break up the suburb and say, well, mm. look, the relist rate for this suburb has gone from t average hold period is 10 years and it's gone to 13 years. However, in these streets, it's gone from 10 years to 18 years and these sides of these streets are now actually at 20 years average hold. And so you can really see that the scarcity of these properties is so tight, um, you know, and that's getting worse every year, which means it's harder to buy. It's easy, you know, it's easier to sell. Is there any way to do that, Kent? Well, look, I've got a mate of mine, Nick Bendell. He does a lot of copywriting for agent listings, and one thing that we covered off was you know, a well-written copy does put the effort into drill down to stuff like that. Mm. Interesting stuff. You know, how long has this street been held for? 
you know, and, and how does that compare to the overall suburb? Yeah. And, you know, and these, these this stuff does surface in well-written copy for listings. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I mean, I have noticed, you know, tightly held is a phrase that is used a lot, right? Yeah. And it's usually in relation to a street or a pocket. I've seen it written into copy recently for a, a few listings where this tightly held house <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> meaning that it's just you know my parents have a tightly held house they've been in it for oh over 50 years right yeah it doesn't mean that it's good it doesn't mean yeah. it's the best house in the suburb <laughs> it just it's hilarious <laughs> this tightly yeah. held house these people have lacked the imagination to move <laughs> but yeah. if, if they started to back it and you can say yeah. you know this particular street in chipperdale mm. for sure yeah, the exactly. last property that sold here was 15 years ago yeah yeah uh, and the average is 11 it's a, it, you know and and the, so it's not a, f- a flippant statement yes it's fact. yeah <laughs> so that's where it's useful and that's the thing, isn't it? Like if you can get a tightly held suburb but a hot, tightly held street and then a tightly held side of that street and then you're in that and that's obviously the best street, ultimately you know that no one's really going to be selling, you're going to have no competition really, you're always going to have the peak of the market. And so that's the, you know, ultimately what you're trying to achieve is get that scarcity within a suburb. So, you know, I think that's a real stat for people to keep watching over the longer term is, mm. you know, do we keep living in our houses longer and longer because there's no other alternative, you know, stamp duty, you know, cost to move, you know, all those, and then just the additional debt, do we want to take it on? That's something that I guess we should keep tracking longer term. Do we need to create the tightly held index? <laughs> well, I guess, well, that's what realestate.com have got here uh, on this interactive tableau chart, which is rather amazing. Mm, I'm looking forward to looking at that. So let's deep dive into a sample of you've done, and I think, Probably this repeat sales index, it sounds like it lends itself more to apartments than houses anyway because A, apartments transact more and B, it's easier to make sure that what has sold is the same as what sold last time. Yeah, it's hard to add a bedroom. Mm, yeah, yeah. You can take a wall out and put a kitchen, update the kitchen, but, yeah, absolutely right. So there's a, there's a level of containment to the improvement that can yeah. be made. Tell us, you've done a bit of a deep dive. You looked at a sample of 50 apartments in New South Wales. You've compared the current sale or asking price in the last sale. There's also the the challenge of this getting the period right. You know, so like because they buy and sell over vastly different periods, that, that the time lag could be the same, but it could have been one sold in a hot market and bought in a cold market or vice versa or, you know what I mean? So there's a level of elasticity in what has actually happened in the greater market in the intervening times. So when you're comparing one property that's sold twice and then another, you want to make sure that time lag is somewhat similar. I mean, how does that all take it into account? Well, the assumptions that hold, and you could list down the assumptions over 50 pages, which is <laughs> quite, you know, one of them is that the market conditions, you know, are, mm. are equal and stable between periods and between markets if you're trying to compare. Mm. So if you, you know, if we're trying to look at, you know, regional New South Wales apartment markets versus city apartment markets, then we could argue quite clearly that the conditions right now are extraordinarily different in the regions versus uh, inner CBD oversupplied markets, yeah. which no doubt they're improving. But yeah, and we can see that. And I've taken some current listings and just compared the, the asking price or the sale price. It's a bit of a mixed bag. And then just for the example today, and then compared it to, to what those that have a last sale recorded and then split it up with an average growth per annum. It's interesting because there are some anomalies, especially in those suburbs where medians have jumped because of new stock. I think we've covered that one about a thousand times. Yeah. But, you know, what you will find here is there are a number of suburbs that tell a very different story when we look at the repeat sales change versus looking purely at the median change. And to that point, what the Americans have done rather well is they build indices that only look at new stock and then they've built others that only look at secondary housing markets as they call them. Is that what you get from having a population of three million instead of twenty six million? Yeah, look, I think they do they do a lot a lot of things smarter than we do. Mm. You know, and I think we can sit back and armchair criticize the Yanks, but they they certainly smash it when it comes to property data and analytics. Mm. 
So, yeah, so sorry, I just interrupted there. Keep, That's all right. Keep going. with what, yes. what have you found? So what I found was a really a couple of key things. So a lot of the city suburbs have got fairly low percentage changes per annum based on the sample period. So, you know, if you look and arrange it out and say over the last 10 years, so many of these suburbs have, uh, you know, for units are very low single digit. But here's the one kicker, the really interesting thing. Forget region for a minute. If I go and I take my spreadsheet and I list it down by price, you'll see a very, very interesting trend. And what that is, is the those that are coming off the lower base have the highest growth. Really? Double. Yeah. So if you if you look at and say what's the you know, what's the the middle price here, the the average price, the average price, say four hundred and thirty thousand for this sample, just mm. for this sample, for argument's sake. Yep. And I then carve that and take the bottom half, you know, typically the bottom half of them, I am getting about an 8% annual growth rate versus the higher half, and I'm getting a 4% growth rate. So this is the interesting thing. Mm. So it's just, you know, it, it's lower price properties in affordable areas becoming very attractive for a whole range of reasons. That's blowing my theory and every cell in my body is going confirmation bias, confirmation bias, ignore, ignore, delete, delete. <laughs> so so this obviously begs some further analysis because the upper end of the prices, you would assume larger apartments, you would assume there's a lot of our tightly held, shall I say that, beliefs around property that are now being challenged by some of this data. We need to do some more research. Yeah, I think I think Anecdotally, I'd say there's there's an interesting blip caused by something called COVID, mm-hmm. and there's been you know there's been a flurry to a lot of these regions that made up the sample, mm. and you know places like Tweed Heads or places like you know Curry Curry or you know Marimbula, you know these had properties that were available for you know low two hundreds or below, yeah, and now they don't. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I mean, you had a small number of listing sales, you know, over the last 12 months and you've had a huge increase in demand, you know, with the region shift plus low rates. And so, you know, it makes sense that, you know, these type of price growth has been, and it hasn't been factored in with the, you know, the massive change with work from home. And so, you know, over a short period, that's you likely to see a massive increase in that. And t- but it's once they're not affordable anymore, do people keep going to their regions? You know, is that price difference still there? Yeah, and we, we we won't know until we know. And so, you know, right now I'm just talking to the data as it is here, mm. and it was a a sample, a random sample of properties that were listed last week or listed the week before that I could pair up some prices and pair up a, a last sale. So it was very random. Mm. And yeah, when I started, I just like to do filters. I just do the, you know, descending and ascending mm. on the columns. And that just jumped at me. I've gone, oh, what's what's this? Let's split the, the upper half and the lower half. And yeah, you know, look at it, look at it. The the bigger price change came off the low base. And but that's a common thing that I've always find. You come off a low base, it's easy for a bigger percentage. But then you've also got Say it's a house, you know, certain repairs that you may need to do to the property. There's, you know, in those repairs are sometimes fixed, right? Like the cost to get a plumber out and fix a tap mm-hmm. is the same on a $2 million property than it is on a $200,000 property. And it's the same as replacing mm-hmm. potentially a roof, et cetera. And this is some of the things that you find with cheaper properties that, you know, the maintenance costs can also eat into your return oh, and the, the fixing things up. And that's something to obviously bear in mind. The percentage could be higher, but then you have to discount that for the maintenance issues and yeah, potential look, rental issues, etc. This was apartments, and I think what we are finding is a yeah. lot of the you know a lot of the larger apartment blocks are suffering because of the build quality issues. And the, yeah, every time I open up the Apple News feed, it seems to be another story about a an apartment block that's got building problems. I'm looking at one property. I, I'm just sort of scaring through <laughs> this list, you know, like, and it's like in Tunkari, there's this apartment that, if I've got it right, sold for 379000 in 2011 and then unsold for, hang on. 379, so 172 versus 379. Sorry, yeah, 172 versus 379. So I guess... Uh, one hypothesis is that these just sat there doing nothing for a long time and then COVID's come and then that's just 
giving yes. them a massive increase. So therefore, even though it says here 12% per annum growth, it could be 120% per annum one year and then oh, it could, nothing yeah, that, for it nine could have been years. Not, well, I, I can tell you right now, I've got a, a friend who worked in mortgage insurance and he had two or three investment properties apartments in Tunkurry and mm. we'd, sit, we'd sit down and he'd, we'd have the same story, should I sell these? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> because they were going nowhere. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, look, we interviewed Jeremy Shepherd, you know, a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about capital growth and he's really just talking about very, very, very short-term capital growth and, and that decision as to whether you should sell a, a dud asset or not and so that was a whole conversation around that. If all those pointers are like, oh, my God, the market's hot right here now and I've sat on this for nine years and it's done nothing, get the hell out of it. <laughs> Just sell, sell. And you can see why. Uh, very interesting. Well, another interesting thing I'm noticing as well is that, you know, when you're looking at the places, say, in the capital city, you know, where prices have pretty much done nothing over the, the sale period, a lot of those in areas where they keep building more supply, right? Yes. So it's at a certain profitable price point where developers can make money. And so whenever there's more demand, they just keep building them. And so you get this flat lining of prices, which you can definitely see, you know, pull out a few suburbs here, um, you know, the Parramatta, Wentworth Point. Yes. And, you know, these areas where you just keep on building apartments. And so mm. you're seeing this flat lining of prices, zero price growth over that period. And, mm. These other regional areas in the apartment space is they're not profitable to build more apartments oh, in these areas. Well, so- well I, 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 look, Gosford's a classic. I was just having a chat to a couple of buyers agents in Gosford and we're looking at the, the building approvals pipeline specifically yep. for townhouses because there's no housing stock mm. yep. and there's nothing in the pipeline. If, yep. Like if you're a developer right now or if you've got development potential development land right now, get, on, get, get your skates on. <laughs> well, it has to be profitable, right? They have to look at the, the land cost. They have to look at the build cost and then they have to obviously a margin, et cetera. And the problem with all these regions is they haven't built any more apartment stock. No. But as they grow in value, and this is the common challenge with apartments, as they go up in price, that also creates opportunity for developers to start increasing supply. And so as these apartments, for example, uh, in Marimbula have gone from 300 grand to 400,000, there's a lot of land there that could turn to apartments in Marimbula. Oh, and so if that goes yeah. to say 450, hang it's, on a sec, developers will go, right, if we can sell these apartments for 450, let's build a thousand of them. Game on. And then you start getting this flat line in prices. And so you've just got to also, always with apartments or things that you can build more of, is as they rise in price, that encourages developers to start increasing stock, which then you get supply easily get over supply and markets and then you can either get falling prices. And so you just got to be very conscious of that with apartments. I felt this personally for a long time with the townhome in Wellington Point. It went nowhere. And every time the market looked like it might have got a bit of a run on. Yes. You know, you buy one old Queenslander on, you know, 1,500 square metres and you build half a dozen townhomes. Yeah. You just couldn't get a run on. Did you get stuck? You, you got burnt. I got well. I just I held it and I held it for several years and it mm, went yeah. nowhere. So what you're explaining, Chris, I felt it. I've been there mm. personally, yeah. right? So you know exactly. I, and townhouses are exactly the same point. You know, if you've got this brand new townhouse, you're the only townhouse in the area, and you know they go up. It goes up from a million to one point two. Well, hang on a sec. That person with a six hundred square meter block does their feasibility study <laughs> and they say. Actually, I've got a block. I can do three townhouses, sell them at 1.2, 3.6 million, and I'm going to make 400 grand. Whereas if it was a million dollars, they wouldn't make any money. Mm. And so all of a sudden you get this rush of DAs. Yep. And all these people start building these townhouses. And then they, when they go to sell them, they go, hang on a sec. Now there's, there's 50 townhouses available. It's a glut. Actually, I'm going to sell them for 1.1. And um, then you get the back down to a million dollars, et cetera. And so, yeah, you've got to be super careful owning an asset that you can get replicated on because as prices are rising, developers or even mums and dads in the area are starting to think, hang on a sec, can we, can we start to you know, cut up my land to make money. It's funny. I mean, I just, I can't help it. I go into look at some of these properties. So the top four in this randomly generated list, there's two in Chippendale and two in Darlinghurst apartments, okay? Chippendale were both in the uh, Central Park development and both would have been, I'm presuming, sold off the plan 2010, 2012, right? And so there's a premium that they've paid 
immediately anyway because they're brand new but also massive complex you talk about supply huge huge so they're, they're both on sold and uh the change per annum for one is two percent and for the smaller one actually and the larger one per annum change three percent so 22 percent gain for the smaller one 32 percent gain for the larger one then you look in Darlinghurst so it's only a couple of suburbs away not far two properties that had sold in 2013-14 pretty beginning of the boom yeah. and then on sold again just last month and one's uh, 59% gain in that time 8% per annum and the other one 50% 6% per annum the one that the 8% I just know by the addresses that is an art deco apartment oh and so that's the better performer and obviously supply of that is you, you can't replicate those and the other one is a modern apartment but a older modern apartment in an area in Darlinghurst and and that went up you know, 50% in that period of time. So there's just four immediately that you can compare that issue with brand new, paying a premium for brand new, too much supply, too much homogeneity, homogeneity, is that the word? Homogeneity. Homogeneity of stock also impacted by COVID more so. That particular development is very highly impacted by COVID because it's very closely located to UTS and Sydney Uni, I guess, for that matter. So therefore, a lot of a lot of overseas students, a lot of, you know, from what I, anecdotally, from what I understand, a lot of Chinese owners in that building that are bought in there for their kids to go to university, et cetera, et cetera. So it's sort of it's the perfect storm there. It's great that they made a gain at all <laughs> versus, you know, more established less new stock, less potential for new stock to hit the market, you know, and that, that's pretty stark. Hey, uh, Veronica, you should do this for a living. I've thought about it because, you know, it's a passion of mine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people that come into buyers' agents and go, oh, I just love property. <laughs> but I think they like inspecting property and looking at interior design. <laughs> anyway. I'm just looking at the list. It's the W's. Like Wentworth Point, there's some people here that have owned properties for a decade and they mm. haven't got up in price. Oh, You know, and when we're point of building a lot more apartments now than they were potentially a decade ago. And so, you know, if you've held that property for a decade plus stamp, uh, you know, mm. buy costs, sell costs, whole costs, um, benefit of renting owning that, that apartment versus the mortgage interest, this has been a costly, costly decision for people. I think you compare, say, an apartment in Wollongong, they've performed at 8% or gone up 60 or 70% over the last decade. And people a lot of them say that, you know, long-term growth is, you know, what you should be basing your decision on. But I would argue that, you know, now they're at 600 grand apartments in, say, Wollongong. Now the developers will be saying, hang on a sec, there's lots of one or two-storey commercial in Wollongong that could easily be knocked down for apartments. And so, uh, that's profitable now. And so I think if you come back in a decade, you know, Wollongong is probably going to see similar returns as an, an apartment level to what Wentworth Point is. It's just that difference in mm. the supply the really timing. hit the market or there was no supply, really no building because it wasn't profitable. And I think that's a really interesting thing to sort of track long term is, you know, the rise in prices causing development. Mm. Well, yeah, because, of course, then, you know, we don't want to fall for the recency bias to say, oh, right, look at that. That's a really solid area to invest in. Look, <laughs> there's just this evidence. Yeah, the suburb median. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the top ten list. Oh, yeah. my God, yeah, it's the top ten list. So this is, yeah, it's fascinating stuff because, of course, this this is like seeing the drill down of, you know, my favourite report, the pain and gain report every quarter from CoreLogic. We learn a proportion of Australian property sales that are sold for a loss. And this is actually drilling down into mm, really getting to, getting a snapshot into understanding which property sold at a loss. And this is the stuff that for a property investor to be successful, they need to understand what's contributing to these poor performances and what contributes to good performance. It's like that research I did earlier where I looked at what are the characteristics that a property needs to have to be an overperformer and the, and the market, you know, you do need to know a lot about property to make a good decision, really. Anyway. Well, you know, th this stuff, all this data, it's public domain. I mean, if, you, if you're going to spend a few hundred K or more or a few million bucks, this is information you can get directly from a number of portals. Just having a look, just find what's you know what's recently listed or recently sold, and then look at their history. It's all published. 
But you need to understand that you can't, you can lose money and property first. You know what I mean? I think that too many Australians really enter this whole thing saying, oh, you know, property, bricks and mortar, safest houses, you can't lose. Or rising to highly steel ships, you know, it's all right. It doesn't matter. I can buy the shit on, piece of shit on the main road because it'll be fine, which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> mm. You know, there's this belief that you can't go wrong. It's too overwhelming because there's so much data out there and you're right, it's freely available. But the process of going through that systematically to actually work out what what's meaningful, what's valuable, what should I be paying attention to? That's what's missing. Maybe that's what the three of us should create. What do you reckon? You know? <laughs> anyway, okay, so I guess what can this approach, back to our, you know, recent repeat sales index, what can this approach tell us that the medians or the hedonic models can't? And could it ever be applied in Australia in the way it's applied in the States, do you think? Yeah, I think it can apply for units, definitely. Mm. Um, you know, if, I, if, if you are a business out there wanting to try and cut through some noise and get something that media would latch onto and you could get some good PR, build a repeat sale index for apartments and talk to a bloke in Newcastle who can help you do it. <laughs> <laughs> are we going to share this spreadsheet with our listeners, Kent? Is that the- uh, what I might do is I'll craft one up that's a little bit more shareable. Yeah, it'd be interesting just so, you know, our listeners can sort of see what we've been looking at and just mm. to sort of see the, the data and play around with it because it's it's really fascinating. And the more I look at it, the more interested I am, to be honest, and I'm going to probably <laughs> ask you to do this next month for me as well. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something I think real data, real properties, real streets, rather than just these median numbers that people like to wrap themselves up with. And yeah, you can really see the pain where people have made good decisions, but also what's driving that property you know what has changed why has that property performed so well over that you know 8 10 12 year period mm. okay so we talked about four bedroom houses earlier we know anecdotally that they're very popular post lockdown <laughs> watch yeah. sydney go nuts again you know so you'll bolt out the gates after our mm. lockdown are there any people left that haven't already bought a four-bedroom house that wanted to buy a four-bedroom house? <laughs> I suspect yep. yes. So do tell what's what's been happening in the four-bedroom house segment of the market across the country. Yeah, so certainly in the Sydney area, there's not been a big difference between the price gains of the overall median for the greater, greater Sydney area. For four bedroom houses, of versus Maine. So if we, if wow. we, what we've done, back up for a minute. Say what's what's the overall median, four bedroom, three bedroom, two, everything included, mm. and we split out just the median for four bedroom houses. We're, we're not seeing a big difference in Greater Sydney uh, over the last twelve months. It's not a not it wouldn't be a big enough variance for me to call out and say that you know it's 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 significant and important. Uh, but and I, I well, I've just sort of got a bit of a. Is that because so many of the new suburbs are all built four bedrooms, and in the inner suburbs, oh my god, four bedroom houses have gone gangbusters. Look, I can't say why. I, mm. I, I can I can just talk to what at the mm. moment. Okay, mm. but when I look through the list, you can see some areas, some regions where this has really gone where the price variance is huge. Mm. And, and, you know, really when you when you look at the biggies, you, you know, the, the regional Victoria, you know, uh, the difference is 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 phenomenal, 33% Ooh. difference between. Yeah. So there's quite a big stark difference between the 12-month change. So so you can see kind so, of. So, you, so just to clarify, you're saying that four-bedroom houses have done, have increased by a difference of 33% versus Over and above, houses, yeah. all houses. Correct, correct. So, and mm. now let's just kind of make sense of that. You know, there's there's people exiting the CBD area, pushing into these regions and looking for the yeah. home office. Mm. You know, you've got clients, Chris, that you were talking about doing exactly this. Yeah. But what is makes that sense, what right? If you're going to. Yeah. Off- yeah, that's. I, I mean, because people are asking now, well, what's going to happen after Sydney lockdown? And I'm wondering because, of course, their Melbourne prices haven't performed as strongly. I've just been comparing, say, with uh, Sydney and Brisbane and even Adelaide. They've done very well. Oh yeah, but they haven't 
this year. They haven't been as strong as those other cities. But the rest of Victoria has performed stronger. It's the standout here other than the rest of Tassie. (laughs) So maybe that's what we could be looking ahead at. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because, I mean, I think the lockdown, I I talked to friends who just packed up and got out mm. of Melbourne. They just got sick of it. And, uh, you know, quite a few families moved back to Adelaide that I knew. So they, mm. you know, yep. they did the, the big move. And others are just, just getting out of the, the CBD, as I call it, or the greater, you know, the greater Melbourne city area. I just, I, you'd have to say anecdotally that this is going to be the same outcome for Sydney if this lockdown goes on for another month. Yeah, and then the rest of South Australia, that's that's an interesting one. It is, yeah. So, look, South Australia now, I, I'd, I'd really want to drill in deep here, but what we know is that, uh, you know, South Australia, a bit like WA, a lot of it was you know, a fairly dormant market for a long time, you know. People worried about jobs and, you know, you've never been a big fan of some of these low, low-priced low outer, outer burbs or regional spots. <laughs> and I think what's happening, though, is, is people are – looking at them primarily because they're affordable. They're not looking at them because of it's a great long-term investment. Mm, okay. It's just a place to go that's affordable. So, yeah, really is it's driven by price rather than lifestyle. Is that what Correct. you're saying? Oh, Although- I think it's a bit of both. It's just like, you know, if I can't, yeah, and I look at it and I, I start surfing. I'm, you know, I'm locked up. I'm going to get onto Ari. I'm going to surf. You know, I like the look of Victor Harbour. Thank you very much. I can mm. do it myself. Mm. But the four-bedroom houses, when Big you isolate change. those, they've Massive. done really well. Really well. So, yeah, again, I think that's a scarcity issue, you know, and, and, and it will only be a matter of time before things balance out as developers or renovators can catch on and do something about this. Mm. Interesting stuff, isn't it? So then once again, you've got to dig in, dig deep and understand what's underneath this data. But across the board, the four-bedroom homes have outperformed aggregate home. Mm. Well, it's not just the rest because the rest data includes four-bedroom homes, right? Or did you take that out? No, no, no. I I left it in there. So it's Mm. just the the subset that is just the four-bedroom stuff has significantly outperformed. Yeah, and if you took the four-bedroom out of the, the lot, it'd, it'd be, be even be bigger. Stark. Yeah, be bigger yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be interested. Anyway, so there you go. That's I think that's a fairly interesting deep dive. Anything to comment on main roads? Because- oh, look, uh, yeah, <laughs> so, so this is interesting. So when I design automated valuation models, AVMs, uh, one of the variables I regularly use is the main street. Now, the government has a database called the GNAF, geocoded national address file. They've got something that classifies everything down to a footpath. So you've got, you know, 301 is a code that they use for main roads and 302 is a main feeder road down to a footpath. I think it's 309. Anyway. <laughs> cool. Um, so I, I've tried all of these data sets out and I've tried them as a, a scale or a category and uh, and then I've tried the simple zero or one. Are you a main road? Yes or no. Mm. The one that stands out and works rather well in the AVMs tells me a lot about the market. And mm. what that tells me is main road, yes or no, does matter. It is a very significant variable for houses, Mm -hmm. but not for units. Which does make sense because in a unit block, only those that face the main road are noise affected. Although I do, anecdotally, I can say that in a slower market, buyers will shun even looking at a building if it's got a main road address. So even though they will be quiet and you'll see the ads talking back to copywriting and ads, you know, whisper quiet at the rear of the block, (laughs) (laughs) which has to be like the first sentence so that people actually inspect the property. But that is rather interesting. Well, before we moved to Balmain and we bought our property from this wonderful real estate agent, we were <laughs> we, we were in Coogee on one of the main roads and it was a beautiful block with water mm. views and it was an art deco and it was a walk up and, you know, it was all, all goodness. Mm. But, boy, it was loud. Yeah. Mm. And we, we, we had to move because of the noise. Well, double glazing and um, electric cars could be the saviour for you know, potentially these noisy apartments. Yeah. My, my view on sort of main roads or darker properties or, you know, things that are compromised is it's a timing thing and it's just that control of, you know, you could get lucky and you could potentially 
perform similar to the median in the suburb if the market is super hot when you sell and there's a lot of desperation. But that's mm. only like a fraction of the market and can shift really fast. Like I, I would say that that desperation isn't in the market in June, July that it was in the market in March and April. Mm. Would you agree with that, Veronica? It's a little bit easy. People aren't willing to compromise as much as they were, say, two or three months ago. Have right you noticed now- that? People yeah. are buying property like toilet paper. So I would not You're agree with it? that. Uh, worse. That yeah, okay. What's happened, and it's because of lockdown, that, that okay, yeah, people are listings. thinking, oh, shit, there's no new listings. I can't get through. I have to convince the agent that I'm that I'm finance ready to buy. What if we go into to stage four lockdown? That means I can't do anything. Like madly, 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 I want to buy, I want to buy now. And, and we have seen some pretty bloody ridiculous offers being thrown and it's like the negotiation has been they've just truncated and like they've just like taken out the whole negotiation step and just thrown the maximum at it so there's been some very big prices in the last couple of weeks uh yeah. even on the poorer stuff though like not the good stuff because i mean that's always going to be the case but i mean just pre-lockdown were you finding that you know some of the stuff that wasn't that great was not as crazy as it was earlier in the year absolutely we were seeing that that yeah there's a little a bit more critical thinking was coming into the market and agents were reporting that as well that you know the the good stuff's flying out the door hasn't changed the other stuff that's got something wrong with it is a little harder you could see that you know talk about clearance rates um clearance rates had dipped from being above 80 all year mid uh May they actually dipped into the seventies. Now seventies is still a hot market, but but you definitely could start to see then that okay. And there's a number of things that underpin why a clearance rate would fall, and it's not mm. necessarily a falling market. It can also be just reserves are too high, but I think it does go to that idea that well, okay, not everything is going gangbusters. Well, it was in sort of March and April and that's- the, March, and so definitely. If you bought a house on a busy road that was dark or maybe not, there's always a limit to how much people are willing to compromise, but, you know, and, and that links up to how desperate people are, right? And so if you bought a house on a, you know, poor road and you bought it, say, like in 2018 when the market was really tough and you got a big discount yeah. on, a, on a better road, right? And- you know, let's say the median for the area is 1.5 and you got this house that was a similar block size, but you got it for 1.2, right? Which potentially you could have done in that market because there was no one buying, people were still needing to sell. And then if you sold in March, you would have definitely outperformed the general market because you would have bought massively discounted mm. and you would have got a price that was similar to the best properties in the area, like really, because there was just so many people willing to compromise and but that's shifted, I think, in the space of a couple of months. Yeah. And so you, you, with these sort of main roads or things that are compromises, you, you, you really need luck on your side. You need to Massively. buy really well and then you need the luck around the sale, which is completely out of your control. Like it's so hard to time because people in March and April would have said, you know what, that one up the road just sold for $2.2 million and it's on a really poor road. Why don't we list our property? They call an agent. The agent says, oh, yeah, that one sold for $2.2. You, you'll definitely get that. And then three or four people list on that poor road and then bang, people are like, well, there's no pressure here. I don't think it's worth 2.2. That was too high. So you've just got to be really careful because a lot of people, you know, in desperate markets go and make these compromises, but they don't really realize the impact till they try to sell one day and you need a lot of luck on your side. It's very true. And that exact scenario has played out. I've seen it and I and I've experienced yeah. it when I was a sales agent as well. Time in time again and, and no one can time the market. You never know until it's happened yep. <laughs> whether it was or wasn't the peak of the market. And so that's exactly right. And I think too what would be interesting is that those main road properties potentially, you know, if we were to do one of those data capture to say, well, how long have people owned property versus the average in the area, you know, those main road properties will change hands more often because people get the shits. You know, they're sick of it. And whereas if you're in a beautiful, quiet, light-filled, lovely, leafy outlook apartment, you don't have any sense of urgency or dissonance around the fact that you've had to compromise on something that really does get under your skin and bother you every single day. I mean, we've seen the explosion locally around me. Like there's certain roads that you just don't want to be on and you can see there's four, four sales signs coming up, you know, regularly and a lot of those properties generally wouldn't sell that fast but they're selling really fast but now they're sitting on the market and, you know, you can just sort of see where people have got excited. 
oh, now's our opportunity to get out of this property because we hate this road. They've listed and then they're like, actually, you know what? People aren't that desperate as much. They don't want to pay that big price for that street. And so everyone listening to this can do that within their own suburb. They can figure out what are those streets and, and get those learnings for themselves. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kent. Do we have a topic for next month or is it going to be a lucky dip? I um I never prepare for this question. And then what <laughs> I, you know what I do, I stumble and I throw it to Chris. So I'm going to be <laughs> honest and say, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. <laughs> it's a whole month away. Chris, have you been thinking about it? Uh, no, but I think we'll leave this up for the surprise for our listeners. Oh, we could do the, can we do a tightly held index? Let's, yeah, let's talk about, let's, okay, here I'm going to make this up as I go. We're going to pick some suburbs that are tightly held and some that are less tightly held and look at the deltas and, and then try and understand why there's been a shift. Sounds like a plan. Okay, I better write that down. <laughs> so- it's kind of it's just the same idea and storyline as on that REA article. We're just going to refresh it and steal it. Yeah. <laughs> well, inspired by it. Inspired by it. Yes, we're go. taking inspiration from that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that sounds like a great idea. I'm up for that. We'll talk to you before then because we've got weekly episodes coming out every Monday. But we will talk to you, Kent, in a month. Wonderful. Thank you. Cheerio, Kent. Bye. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.